Welcome to Locarno Meets, where the most exciting new talent and established legends of cinema come to chat about art, life, movies, and everything in between. Brought to you by UBS and hosted by me, Alexander Miller, from Locarno Film Festival. It's often said by cast and by crew that working on a film is a bit like being part of a family. And usually, that's where the comparison ends. Not so for Katie Folger, one of the actors in Family Portrait, whose director, Lucy Kerr, we spoke to earlier in this series. Many of those involved in that production stayed on set at the house where filming took place, fostering a unique closeness and camaraderie. As well as being an actor, Katie also writes which gave her the skills to experiment as she and the rest of the cast and crew put together this ethereal project about a family attempting to take a group photograph. One of the best things about him is the ensemble cast. It feels like there's a lot of very specific decisions that have gone into that. Indeed. And for you and your fellow castmates, how much were you involved in that? Or did the director march in and go, no, 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 no. It's exactly like this. Don't you dare move an inch. Oh, no, no. We were given so much freedom to play and do strange things. I mean, the whole process was odd. It was not conventional. And and I think that's obviously reflected in the product and in the the visual language of of the film and the impact on the audience. But it just kind of felt like we were at summer camp. A lot of people were living on set. So like the space, that property that you see, many people in the film and in the crew were staying there. It was an incredibly immersive experience. We we didn't really leave. Like we all existed mm. in this space together. That is definitely reflected in the final film. Yeah. Because as I say, it feels very, very well lived in. And sometimes that could be the hardest thing to achieve if you're shooting something on an indie budget and you don't necessarily have the most time in the whole world. Right, right. Was there a lot of rehearsing? I don't really recall a lot of rehearsal as much as really, again, unusual, we would kind of sit down at a table together, kind of some of the key players, not just the actors, but also like a creative producer, the director of photography, sound. We would all sit down together and talk about the scene before we performed it. Like we would all explore ideas about the scene. We would talk about what it reminded us of, like very specific subjective experiences. And then sometimes those funnels of thought would weave their way into the performance, into the portrayal and into the text. We did not have a firm, bolded, underlined blueprint script. It was very much a document that gave us elbow room and allowed Mm. us to move. But, you know, we still did use text. Like we used the text. We just, we built off of it. It was sort of dreamlike, the whole thing. Are these characters you're playing, this kind of family, this like grand Texan, they say grand to me. Is that a type of person that you recognize? Do you know those kind of families? Oh yeah. You can kind of throw a rock. You know, I mean, there's a lot of money in Texas, a lot of oil money specifically, highly conservative place, uh, people with large swaths of land and cattle. I mean, it's not the only thing that exists in the state at all, but there's a reason that it's an archetype because yeah. it's it's real. Maybe it's a bit unfair. And, and I guess I'm just kind of buying hook, line and sinker into that archetype, but mm-hmm. it almost feels to make a film, the focus is so clearly on nature, Mm -hmm. but to do it in Texas, where there are certain assumptions about where money comes from, is a kind of political decision. Is that 
that's that crossed your mind? Yeah, it is. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think the film is in conversation with that stereotype and it doesn't display it in a, I think in a predictable or cliche or stereotypical way. Really what I think the film does well is it, it sort of zooms in to the underbelly, like the undercurrents of that kind of dynamic and lifestyle. And, and very specifically, like I think the film does well in that it's also highly specific. Mm. So it, yeah, it doesn't really operate in generalizations. You can't help but speak a little meta when you're talking about family portrait because sure. it is a portrait of a family. <laughs> but you know, that's kind of the, there's a juxtaposition at play of this kind of macro zoomed out general idea of what it's like this image is supposed to be. And then mm. it zooms in and looks at these people in a more microscopic way. With something as kind of tonally various as this, and I really do think it is, even though there is an underlying kind of sense of terror that kind of charges through it. When you first saw it, were you surprised by it? Or, or okay, you, you were, you're nodding. I, had not, I could not expect a thing. I was talking to another podcast before I came and they were asking me questions about the movie. And I was like, I have to be completely honest with you. I do not know what I'm about to watch because we just, we made it in such an unusual way. Mm. You know, I've worked on like a lot of different film projects. And like I said, this was definitely more of an outlier when it comes to the way that we made it. It was not conventional. And because of that, I was not certain what it was going to be. But I think when we watched it, and many of us in the cast have talked about this, it made complete sense. Like then when we saw it, we were like, oh, that's what we were making. <laughs> you know, because I think it's hard to even speak about. Certainly it was very much like a hive mind mm. project. I even think Lucy herself she didn't have like a declarative statement, like I'm coming in and I'm making this kind of movie. Like it was very, everyone had room to just be and meander. Mm. So, I mean, I think everybody's been somewhat surprised at what it is, but it makes complete sense. I suppose that, there's probably no form of it that wouldn't be surprising. Of this movie specifically, yeah. yes. But then I watch other movies that like I've been in and it's like exactly the thing, okay. you know, it's the shot, it's over the shoulder. It's nah, nah, nah. there's no air between the lines, like very by the book. Which type of film is funner to make? This one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was an obvious answer. Yeah. <laughs> this. I love doing weird shit. <laughs> it's my preference. The final scene mm -hmm. when effectively our, our protagonist is walking through looking like she's from Carrie. Uh, covered in pond scum <laughs> and everyone's just like la di da di doo di da di dee yeah, yeah. like if you try and get too prescriptive about something you destroy it but still whatever nevertheless how did you interpret that are they existing in different places is someone dead have we just gone totally metaphysical does it not matter I always say the word like liminal with this movie sure I just think it exists in a liminal space did you guys realize it was going to be funny? Because I straight up laughed like out loud like four or five times. You know, I kind of identify as like a comedic performer, comedic writer, comedic artist, but I don't write jokes. Mm. I, I only started kind of identifying as that because other people told me that I was funny. It's like I'm not trying to be funny. What I write isn't trying to be funny. So often I think the mo like kind of the most disturbing things can end up being yeah. very funny. Like they are funny. Yeah. It's a way to cope with 
discomfort and uncertainty. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that there are funny moments in the movie because it's it's a bit absurd. It's a bit satirical. Yeah, yeah. You're a writer Mm -hmm. and you've written a one-woman show. Yes. I want to get the name right. Getting in bed with the pizza man. Yeah. Tell me about the show. I call it a jump down a rabbit hole of beginner sexual empowerment. Uh, It's a woman who's essentially... Post COVID, this woman goes on a sort of a <laughs> a love tryst trip, mm-hmm. and encounter things go awry, and makes some important discoveries about herself and her understanding of herself as a woman and uh, her sexuality and how to communicate. And it's really through the lens of making a bunch of mistakes. Was it a COVID project? What kind of drove you to write it? Was it something you'd always had an urge to do? Um, I've been a writer my whole life. Kind of what I say is I've been too shy to share my work with people until I got older. Yeah. And it's very, I mean, I've honestly written about sex for the, like, I love writing about sex. It's my favorite thing to write about. And even when I was like younger, and I think I was very self-conscious about that, Mm. being raised in like a very conservative family, um, mostly in Texas and going to church and whatnot. And then as I got older, I just think I stopped caring. And so, yeah, this was a short story I wrote. It was originally prose, um, 30 pages, wrote it a couple summers ago after having, I mean, it is based on, I call it memoir style fiction. Sure. It's it's based on truth that I contort to mm-hmm. make into a, you know, a more cohesive arc or whatever. But um, as a writer, I kind of just, everything kind of comes onto the page pretty quickly. And then I edited it off and on for a couple years. And then I experimented with it on a few audiences. And that's how I started to realize that it worked as I just read it in front of uh, an audience of like 25 colleagues and friends in my backyard in November, 2021. And people laughed the whole time, didn't know it was a comedy. (laughs) And, uh, And from there it started to evolve. I mean, you say it's the journey of empowerment. I mean, the act of writing a one-woman show is in some ways it's an act of empowerment because you're, yeah. you're grasping all responsibility for yourself. Yeah, precisely. It was, it's been an incredible, incredibly fulfilling journey as an artist. It's been my favorite thing that I've done yet for this very reason, just because we're getting a little pretend or a little philosophical here, but I feel like there's a bit of like a spiritual alchemy that comes when you're when you are bringing these words, like they're coming from your soul and then you're embodying them and Mm. speaking them in front of an audience. Like that's a very, you're literally embodying your internal reality for other people. And then you're exchanging that with them. And that's a very intimate thing to do. Scary though. I would have terrifying. That first read must've been a nightmare. You know, it wasn't so bad the first time, but the first show I was in May in Austin, it was, it was terrifying, um, but in a really good way. Do you have a director? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. That would be crazy, actually. No, I yeah, I had a team. A one-woman show is not a one-woman show. <laughs> it's 20. It's like it ends up being, you know, it's a play just like any other or sure. a production. But yeah, I had a director. His name is Matrix Kilgore. He also went to UT Austin. Lucy knows him. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's like it ends up kind of being a small world. What's like the the creative scene like in Austin these days? Because yeah. I assume it's not quite the same as it once was. No, 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 no. The funny thing is, I mean, Austinites get pretty 
<laughs> it can get pretty pretentious when and like a little grumpy curmudgeonly with all these people moving in sure. a lot of like tech people especially from California are, are mo have moved there our rents have gone through the roof we all kind of say like RIP Austin like mm -hmm. it's not it doesn't it's not the same anymore it's kind of what was is dead but there are still artists that have been there for a really long time that are still there. And so, you know, that's part of the the disappointment, the heartbreak mm -hmm. of a city becoming larger. Things are going to become a bit more diluted. The identity of the city can't be as concentrated, mm -hmm. but it's still there. You know, there's a lineage of filmmakers. I'm like a part of this kind of community of artists and they've been there for years, like since the 80s and I've learned from them essentially mm, so it's kind so of cool. it is cool it's honestly I I feel <laughs> I got to see Austin before it was completely commercialized and taken over by the tech boom and so in that sense I do feel a bit of a responsibility to like keep the keep the spirit alive and keep, keep the flame lit, yeah keep the flame mm -hmm. burning so i in my own work I, I like strongly identify as like being an austin artist i actually really love this festival i've never been it's so cool to be here because i actually feel that in like my small community in austin and like what i like about it i'm seeing in yeah. communities yeah. from all over the world for the first time. It's inspiring, isn't it? It's amazing. And I prefer work that operates like that. Like it doesn't, I don't know. Of course there's ego present in the art house film world too. I mean, there's ego present everywhere, but I just, I like work that's not trying to follow the rules, mm. I suppose. Um, and I, I'm, I feel like that's kind of, you know, Austin filmmakers kind of, or they kind of make, stuff that doesn't really like fit in line with a lot of other American work. And it's just been nice to see yeah. here as well, all over from people all over the world. It's cool. It, it gives me a sense of hope about the future of cinema and Same. art and culture and stuff. I know it's kind of like utopic in that <laughs> way. Um, I feel the same way. I was actually really depressed about film before I got here because of what's going on in the States and yeah. just like, just feeling like pretty gross about what's been, I mean, I have for a long time and I honestly have, you know, in America, you do feel this bit of a pressure to conform and kind of fit yourself in line with what Hollywood wants you to be. And I never really wanted to do that. Mm. And I have always sort of questioned that about myself. I'm like, well, do I just want to separate myself from something that I don't feel accepted by? Or like, is that sure, me yeah. trying I to might make be defensive, myself? Yeah. But no, I'm actually like, no, this is, no, this is just like the type of artist that I am. And that's like totally okay. And it's much cooler. Well, you know, I mean, if it is, it is, if it isn't, it isn't, <laughs> but I, I agree. I like it. I like it this way a bit better, you know, because it's uh, something I say too, is there are very few, at least in Western society, there are very few places that as human beings, we can have meaningful ritual, like mm. where we can really gather intentionally, like mm. all in space and like meet one another and be authentic and genuine. And it's just, we don't have, especially in like an increasingly digitalized world, we don't get to like be with one another in community. And I think- It does the, make a difference. Why I like film is because it allows us to participate in these familiar rituals, you know? Well, thank you for participating in this podcast.
Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> It's truly my pleasure. Thanks again to Katie. This has been Locarno Meets, a podcast from Locarno Film Festival brought to you by UBS. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your pods. This has been a true anti-classic production hosted by me, Alexander Miller, and produced by Jack Boswell. <laughs>